David makes a profession of his faith and a prophecy of the nature of the rule of the coming kingdom of Messiah in Psalm 101. He says, I will sing of loving kindness and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praises. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. I shall not fasten it. it shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they will dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land, so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. A powerful remark about the future of a walk in righteousness for mankind in the coming kingdom in Psalm 101. I always afford you a moment of silent prayer if you need it. I think we could all use more time in prayer, but I mean specifically that if we, believers in Christ, according to the Apostle John, including himself, if we confess our sins, those thoughts, words, deeds, actions that we should not have done, those things God told us to do that we did not do, those sins of omission or commission. If we confess our sins, that's name the case, state the fact to God. He, God, is faithful and righteous with the result that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Those sins we confess, he forgives, and the cleansing is for all unrighteousness that which we don't even know about, that we have fallen afoul of the character of Christ, the righteousness of God. This is something that I believe we should avail ourselves of regularly, and especially when we're going to do something as vital as open the Word of God and encounter Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 12, the focal passage of the little apocalypse. Let's pray. Our Father, we assemble to exalt your name, to praise you with everything we say and do. We're mindful when we're adjusted to reality that we don't deserve the privilege you've extended to us to praise you. We don't deserve for the air to function within our lungs so that our vocal cords could vibrate, so that our brains could think the beautiful and glorious thoughts that you are our creator, there is no other, and that the entirety of all creation is for your glory and praise. But we draw breath, Father, and we say these things, and we praise you for the wisdom, the strength to do it. We're just little babies in your hand. We know that it glorifies and honors you personally for us to engage you with these truths personally. So we thank you for the privilege and the forum to do it tonight. Father, for bringing us together with the wisdom to know we should assemble, be about your word together so that we can be about your work together and individually. And we ask that these time, this time and, and this meditation on your word would not be academic, but that we would learn something so we can be useful to you in living our lives to please you. We're begging you tonight for wisdom, fully expecting you to give it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
you turn to Isaiah 25, we're looking at Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 12 tonight. Asking the question in this passage of great joy and rejoicing, who is going to rejoice? And by way of introduction and just as a hint, it won't be Moab, whoever Moab represents in this passage. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for the peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we've waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we've waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab will be trodden down in his place, as straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile. He will spread out his hands in the middle of it, as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pride together with the trickery of his hands. The unassailable fortifications of your walls he'll bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, even to the dust. The little apocalypse, four chapters, Isaiah chapters 24 through 27, focuses in on that passage that we just read according to one way of understanding the structure that Isaiah presented. Understand it's a lot of effort, a lot of data in those four chapters to put together in this poetic arrangement that this is the center. And I think he's probably right, but if he is, I really like that. And here's why. Because it's a victory lap. Because the rejoicing in the salvation of our God for all the nations to stream to Jerusalem and in this mountain where God is hosting his massive banquet. This is such a great joy. And notice the, the, the great concerns that we have. Every tear will be wiped away from all faces. God is going to deal with death and it will be glorious when he does. And you don't want to be Moab. You don't want to be on the wrong side of that equation, which is why I asked the question, who will rejoice? So we look at it uh, in some detail, verse by verse. In verse 6, it says, he will make. We start with asah, the verb, typical verb in Hebrew for to do or to make. The poyeo of Hebrew is asah. And it says, Yahweh will do, will make. Yahweh sabaoth will make for all the peoples. Ha'amim. This word is a, usually a collective, the word people. It's already plural as a singular word because it means a group of people. And it's synonymous with the word goy, a nation. A people is an ethnicity or a group of people with some bond, some connection. But he uses a plural form of this. And so he's saying all the many peoples of the earth. This is apparently the conclusion of hostilities and the end state, this is a sinner-seeking structure, as we said, and the end state of the tribulation is the glory of God in the kingdom of Christ on planet earth, the coming kingdom of God that's always been hoped for, that's been prayed for, that's been expected, that some were confused about in the first advent of Christ. We're talking about the second advent of Jesus Christ when he comes with judgment to conclude the tribulation period and establish what we call the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And all peoples on this mountain, in this mountain, this har, 
this mountain has to be Zion. It's a reference to Jerusalem. Remember, the geography in the Bible is important, especially the land. This land is in dispute right now. Every week I hear some news report where somebody is accusing Israel of occupying foreign land that is not theirs, that doesn't belong to them, that isn't their property, that isn't their right. Uh, Most recently, I guess, I heard France is saying something um, about occupied territory or uh, they didn't like something that the Israeli government did with with the terrorists that they deported. Um, there's always something in the news about this, and it's just a sign of the times, a sign of the times we're in. We're in the pre-tribulation. We're in a time that's building up toward what we're reading about of God's wrath and judgment um, in Revelation chapter 6 and following. And that's, that's always been true. There's all, we've always been in the pre-tribulation. We've always been in an anticipation of this coming conflagration. The worst time in all of human history about which Jesus says in Matthew 24 it's the worst thing that's ever happened that had, will ever happen or will have ever happened. When it does take place, it'll be the worst uh, for mankind, the worst experience. And when he says that, he's not just using hyperbole. He's saying something. He says, if it wasn't for those days, if they hadn't been shortened, if it was allowed to fully run its course, no one would survive it. But the shortening of the days means that the, the wrath of God doesn't run its full course. There is a remnant preserved through this time of Jacob's trouble or tribulation, prophesied in Daniel as the last of the seven sevens of years. And so uh, when this happens, it's going to be that in Jerusalem, all the nations are going to worship Yahweh. That's why I say the central city, the capital of the world government, will be God's son's throne in Jerusalem. Zion, this mountain he's talking about, that's going to be headquarters for this coming kingdom. And it is not a a one nation. Everyone doesn't become Israel. That's not what happens. Israel is the capital state over a world government of many states and many nations, many peoples. And so for all the peoples in this mountain is consistent language that we read in prophecy about this coming uh, um, rule. rule. And what it looks like when Jesus rules on Mount Zion over all the nations is a big banquet of brisket. We have uh, language. First of all, there's going to be a mishta. A mishta that I've translated here with the word feast. And I told you before, Sathah is a word in Hebrew that means to drink. And when you turn it into a noun with a mem on the front and you go from Shathah to Mishta, you're saying that there is a party which will include beverages. It's a, it's a soiree. It's a, it's a feast. And that, that discussion is carried through this passage. And so it's revelry. It's rejoicing. It's not wantonness. It's not sinfulness. It's rejoicing with the the things of this world that we're supposed to honor God with. See, there's nothing wrong with rejoicing. It's rejoicing for the wrong reason, the wrong way. And it says of shimanim, shimanim, oils. Shimon is the word oil, and it is plural here. It's not dual. It's plural, shimanim. And this word means the things that are oily, so oily foods, I found out recently, um, one of my first experiences with uh, the Festival of Dedication or the Feast of Lights or Hanukkah, I found out that this is always celebrated in Jewish households with oily food. It's a motif. It's something that they do 
because of the theme of the oil that didn't run out miraculously and the, and the menorah. The, the, the oil was there for eight days and it should have run out, but it didn't like Elisha and the Shunammite woman's jar of oil. And so it's considered a miracle in that community. And it's not a biblical miracle because it didn't happen when the Bible was being written. It was in the intertestamental period when this took place. But Jesus celebrated the Feast of Dedication in his life. And so this sounds like that. There's a Feast of Oilies of oil, of oily food. I don't believe Hanukkah is a, celebra- is a fulfillment of this, but I think it's in the same vein as this, that there's going to be this, this rich food in this, and this aged wine, this celebration, a feast of rich food, of oily food. And I, of course, I, you know, I think that's probably beef brisket. And a mishta, a feast of Shemarim, so you've got Shemanim and Shemarim, and that's Hebrew poetry, and it sounds similar. There's a, there's a rhyme kind of in that sound. There's a Mishta Shemarim, a Mishta Shemanim, and that's a feast of oiled foods, a, a feast of aged wine. And then he says, did I mention the oily food? Shemanim, he says it again, oily food um, flavored with marrow. So it's, it's super luxuriant. And this is echoing what we read in Psalm 23 as a general statement about what we can expect to be God's flock. The metaphor in Psalm 23, there's two metaphors that happen in six verses. It's an amazing work of poetry with how much imagery David packs into it. We are God's sheep and he is a shepherd. And then we are just subjects as honored guests in the great hall of the great king. Psalm 23, 1 through 4, you're the sheep eating the good grass. He causes you to lie down and eat green grass and have clean water. And he refreshes your soul and he leads you in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And that path of righteousness, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Why are you there? Because you're in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And it goes through the death-shadowed valley. And if, even if I do that walk through the death shadow valley, I'll fear no evil for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then the metaphor changes, the imagery changes And he says, you've prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And you're not a sheep anymore. Now you're a person at a table with a vast spread of delightful food. And you've been given oil and you've been given a cup that overflows. And your enemies have to watch just like like Haman had to watch um, Mordecai be honored and exalted by Ahasuerus. Your enemies have to watch you be uh, doted on by the great king. And uh, this is so good. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so the point of Psalm 23 is the Lord provides. He's your provider, and he's not stingy. He's not buying food with coupons. He's overflowing your cup. He's lavishing upon you this banquet, this feast. You get to go to the best grass with the cleanest water as one of his sheep. And so that's the, that's the idea, and that's where history is tending. And it puts the lie to what I call the diabolical implication. The diabolical implication, Satan's implication, diabolical means of the devil. His implication in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, when he says, God doesn't want you to eat from the tree because he knows that you'll become like him, knowing good and evil. The implication he's making is that God is stingy. 
is that there's so much more he could do for you, but he just won't do it. And that's why you should join me and be opposed to him. That's the attitude of God's enemy, the devil, Satan, the serpent of old, and the red dragon of Revelation 12. That's his attitude. And it creeps into our hearts unbidden. It creeps into our hearts uh, at times when we're suffering. And it's a lie. And it is, as we say metaphorically from the pit of hell, it is the destruction of our souls. And it is not something that we're actually learning, but it is something that in our sin nature at times, given some help from God's enemy, will occur to us. But this is the nature of the coming kingdom. Oily food flavored with marrow, aged fine wine and filtered. And so what you're supposed to think from this, I know this is foreign culture. Just go with me for just a second. We're it's 2,700 years ago across several thousand miles and multiple different cultures. But what he's saying is it's going to be a fantastic party. And he's not going to pull, he's not going to, to, to spare any expense to wine and dine the nations. He will swallow up. Now, this is my favorite part of the little poem here, is that God gets to have a, a meal as well. Yahweh will also eat. He's not eating brisket in this description. He's swallowing something else. He will swallow up in this mountain the face of the covering. The face of the covering is idiomatic, and it sounds strange to us, but it just means there's a thing that God is going to have to devour if we're going to have peace and joy. And this is the same thing as the, the Lord, uh, the God of all peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's overwhelming firepower in Romans 16, 20. The covering, same word again, the covering upon all the peoples, Amim, the peoples. And then he uses a different word for covering, the woven veil upon all the nations. He mentions this covering that is God's meal three times. And he doesn't do it because there are three different veils. There are actually two words for this covering, this veil upon the nations. He doesn't do it because there are two different ones, even though he uses two Hebrew words. This is Hebrew poetry, and we have to rhyme in thought and use synonyms. The reason he mentions this with three references to this covering is because he's emphasizing it. This is the principle of repetition. When God is repeating himself, there's something important happening, and the repetition is significant. What is the repetition? We have a problem, and only God can resolve it. And this is, this is an act of violence. It's epistemological violence. And he does it because of his great love and grace. He will swallow up death forever for the duration it doesn't say forever olam it says uh, uh, it says for the duration lenetzach for uh, for a long time and that could mean forever it's poetic he will wipe clean who the lord yahweh a tear from upon all faces or the tears from all the faces okay so he's not only providing the great party he's also for his delight for his repast He's enjoying the removal of the hurt, removal of the harm, the destruction of death. What a wonderful description of our God. He is opposing death, which is a great enemy, and we read about his defeat of death at the end of Revelation also. The reproach, Herpa, the reproach of his people, he will turn back from upon all the earth, for Yahweh has spoken. 
Perhaps the most important words for our worldview tonight are those last words in verse 8 of all the things that God is going to do. Let me tell you, Isaiah says, what God is going to do for all the nations. This isn't just for Judah, his people, for all the nations in Judah, in the great banquet that he's describing. Let me tell you all the great things God is going to do. And we're like, wow, that sounds pretty good. I'm glad you're telling us that, Isaiah. It's really really interesting. If the, if the, if, for example, if our national government comes to a foreign country and says, these are all the great things we're going to do for you. We're going to provide peace. We're going to defeat the overlord uh, uh, Stone Age people that are keeping you enslaved and keeping you back in the Stone Ages. We're going to remove the Taliban, defeat them, and do all these wonderful things for you and set you up with some infrastructure, get your women some literacy, get you some training, get you some education, get some civilization going, get some government going. Uh, if our government comes to a country and says something like that to them, what they should probably say is, we're good. We're good. Thank you for the offer. But uh, no, we've already seen how that turns out. You can't sustain these promises because you have a political structure that isn't capable of maintaining these promises generation to generation. And I love our country and I love our system, but... It doesn't do well with uh, our allies. It doesn't protect those people and keep its promises to the people we make, make to them. And it's tragic, but it's just true. And I, I have to pay taxes here, and I have to say, as I salute the flag and say the Pledge of Allegiance, I have to say, we don't keep our promises. That's not the point of my message, but see, this is important. God does keep his promises. And that's why you can't worship the United States or any country. You have to worship the Lord of history who is going to have all of the nations worshiping him in Jerusalem in a magnificent banquet of this coming kingdom. And the reason we're sure of it, the reason I'm more sure of this than anything else, this is backed by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. I don't trust that. I won't put my faith in the FDIC. Well, this credit union's good because they've got FDIC. But this credit union, that's not good because they don't have the FDIC. You know what? It's probably a point of wisdom to do the most secure thing you can with the resources that you've worked hard and God has provided. But our hope is not in the FDIC. Our hope is written on our currency, at least today, While we have currency, it's going to be hard to write in God we trust on digital currency. (laughs) But, But the point I'm making is you can be sure of this coming kingdom and what it entails for all the nations because the Lord has devar. He has spoken. And it's like at the end of verse 8, he signs with this is this is how it is. Now, everything God says is take it to the bank, but here we're being reminded of that. That's emphasized that the Lord has said He's going to do this. Oh, what a beautiful thing. This is the utopian dream that all the, the, the socialism and all the different isms are trying to come up with. Every effort to restructure whatever the system is. We're not there yet. It's not equal. It's oppressive this way or it's unfair that way or, you know, it just isn't quite as effective this way as it could be. We haven't really tried it. You know, Stalin, he messed it all up. Communism was just not tried very well by Mao and Stalin. We could do a lot better job, you know, now that we have computers and they can find everybody's address with a click of a button and everybody's aggregated together. We could do a lot better now with the central planning. All that utopian dream that killed all those millions of people in the 20th century was looking, as far as they sold it to the peoples, for this kind of thing, that the tears would be wiped away, 
that the that everyone would be full from the great banquet you would you would be delivered and provided for and even the shame would be removed but it isn't and it it can't happen from the artifices of man and so this verse 8 is very applicable to us because as i often will tell you i got it from peter the lord jesus is our only hope The Apostle Paul calls the coming of Christ for the church the glorious appearing or the blessed hope. He calls that our blessed hope in Titus 3. We're waiting for that. We're not waiting, as you said, one of the great applications. We're not waiting for political processes, but we'll engage in them as stewards of God's resources, including our franchise. We aren't hoping in uh, in grassroots efforts or top-down efforts. We're not hoping in uh, internationalism or globalism. We're not hoping in those uh, constitutionalists like me who will say never to globalism and will fight it because of the Constitution, because of all the, all the honor we owe to our elders who've come before us and bled the ground of foreign countries red to preserve this freedom that we enjoy and beginning with this soil in the war for independence. I'll fight globalism, and it's not, but it's not my hope that we can stave it off. In fact, I believe from what the Scriptures say that before this coming world government over the nations in righteousness, there's coming a one world government in unrighteousness under a false Messiah, and that's what the world is going to embrace. And I'm not going to be able to stop it, and no one's going to be able to stop it, and that becomes an issue of conscience. If you know where things are headed, you still don't say, well, okay, let's just do it. You say, no. And you say, but I expect it to continue because God's going to do what he's going to do. It's hard to be on the ship as it sinks and say, well, this is what God's going to do. He's going to let the ship sink. But anyway, that's, that's down. That's low. That's, that's hard news. This is good news. Our only hope. See, that's the, that's, everything else is a downer. As the ship sinks, it's a downer. <laughs> but this is our only hope. Is there's coming kingdom rule and righteousness. And it's pro- prosperity and blessing and light and truth. And it is our only hope. One will say in that day, this is an interesting uh, switcheroo right here. He says, the Lord Yahweh has spoken. He has devar. And then he says, va'amar. And he will say, and it's not the Lord here. A person will amar, different word, but the same idea. And one will say in that day, bayom in day, hahu, that day. And, and, and one will say in that day. I, I looked this up, bayom hahu, in that day. Um, shows up quite a bit in um, in Isaiah because it's looking to the future. And this has never happened before, so it's still future for us. And Isaiah wrote this 2,700 years ago, and here today we're still looking for it. One will say in that day, Behold, Hine Eloheinu, behold, this is our God, Zeh, this is our God. That's what everyone's going to say. We have hoped or waited for him. Kava, the verb repeated twice here, we have hoped for him. He, third person, has saved us, first person plural pronoun, he has saved us. We have hoped in him and he has saved us. Can we abstract this just a little bit into the way your whole life works? I know that if you're a believer in Christ, you're saved and you're resting in that security, you should be. But what are you being saved from as you walk through this life of toil and tribulation right now? What are the things that we need salvation from that the Lord is our salvation? What are the greatest fears that we face? 
For little kids, it's the fear of boredom. For men, well, I should say little boys in men's bodies who never grow up, they never really outgrow that existential fear of boredom. It's part of the problem, of, we call it first world problems. There's a problem of wealth and ease where you've never really had to work to make sure that you could eat. Where you, it, think about that. Has that been an experience of, of anybody in this culture for two generations? As a, as a rule, where the average person has to work today to make sure we eat tonight or tomorrow? Has that been a thing that's on our minds? And, and imagine how things sh- shake out for kids as they grow up in that kind of environment where what I do now cause has a great effect on what I in- encounter, what I receive. And it's directly from, you know, from farm to table, right, in terms of your experience. And so we have this problem, this first world problem of boredom. The little boys are bored. Little boys and girls are bored, and their greatest fear is boredom. Maybe you did some traveling for Christmas, and you experienced the, uh, are we there yet? First world problem, are we there yet? No, and there are no IEDs on the side of the road trying to kill us. Improvised explosive devices that took out all our troops during the uh, Iraq war. There, there is no threat that if we have to pull off the turnpike here to get gasoline, there is no threat that local bands of raiders will come and steal us and our equipment and, and kill us or worse. There's no expectation of that where you have freedom and law and order. It's a thin veneer of civilization we have, but we do have it. Are we there yet? No, we're not there yet, but... You don't have to walk to grandma's over the river and through the woods. You can ride. But it's just so long. I hope that's the worst thing that happens to you today. But see, that's, that's how little kids are. Their greatest existential fear is boredom. You know, Jesus Christ can save us from this arrogance, this fear of not being entertained. This is, this is the number one driving motivation for young people, I believe, right now is the fear of not being entertained in the moment. He saved us. Jesus can save you from that insanity. And it sounds so absurd when we say it that way, but it's a real problem. It's re- we're, not, we're not poking fun. This is really a huge problem. And so what is the problem you're facing? Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe your problem isn't existential boredom. Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe it's, I can't put my finger on it, but I'm just down and I can't get up. Have you ever been depressed? Have you ever had that experience where you have no reason why, but you can't stop crying? People have this all the time, all around you. Have you ever had something like that? Like, I really don't know what to do about it. I know that there's a doctor that will prescribe pills, and they'll try and see, you know, blindfold, throw darts at the dartboard and see if this works. Oh, that was, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was sad, and now I'm way too happy. Well, let's dial it back a little bit. Or it worked for two days and then I got really down or something. And so you get into this, this roller coaster of medication. In many cases, there's a problem. And, and maybe, maybe that's the problem is that there's a physiological deal where you're struggling. Maybe it's just your physical health and it's affecting other things. We were talking this, at breakfast with some of the gentlemen today about pain. When you get into such a level of pain, it takes over. And it doesn't matter what kind of character you typically have. That's the only thing there is to you is this hurts. And the other people around you that generally see you as a hero, they might start to see you as a villain because of the pain. And we're not making excuses for moral choices we make under duress. We're just saying it's understandable. 
But see, we all have these many, many, many problems in our lives, and this is applicable to us. This is our God. We have waited on Him, and He has saved us. And when you can't get out of the problem, you need to call out to Him. When you are incapable of resolving it, when you're at that place that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians where you don't see the way of escape, God, you said there would be one. I don't know how to resolve this. That's your prayer time. But you wait for Him. We have hoped for Him and He saved us. This is Yahweh. Notice the echo. This is our God. This is Yahweh. Zeh, Yahweh. Elohenu Zeh. This is our God. This is Yahweh. We have hoped in Him. Let us shout in exultation. Let us rejoice in His salvation. If I was to color code this, and I should have, notice this is our God. This is Yahweh. We have hoped in Him. We have hoped in Him. He has saved us. Let us shout in exultation and rejoice in His salvation. So it's a two times he goes through the same thing. And the second time, there's the injunction. Let's sing his praises. Let's rejoice in his salvation. I've received the salvation. Now let me rejoice in it. Let me circle back to the mundane problems of these toils and tribulations, these momentary light afflictions that we're facing where God's our Savior there too. Can we not apply the truth of Christ on the cross and him making me a child of God forever without any separation from God possible because of the new birth, can we not rejoice in that despite existential boredom, despite uh, depression, despite physical pain or, or loneliness or all the troubles? Can we not bring these truths of God's big salvation to bear on the relatively smaller problems? Of course we can. And that's one of the reasons we get together is because the more we talk about the cross, the bigger our perspective becomes. And where before I was so petty and focused on the one thing that was going wrong, and it might have been a doozy. Now I'm going to zoom out and say, but the cross, but my eternal life, but I have the Holy Spirit. Let's gain God's perspective on the whole matter. And it doesn't change that I have a problem. It just puts it into its perspective. What does a little kid do when he takes too hot of a bite? Well, there's three or four options, right? One is to hit the eject button. Hopefully not at his brother's face, because now you've got a burned mouth and a burned face, and that's just, that's, you could do that with Hollywood, but please don't do that at my house. All right. What is another option? Let's say that he's a little bit more tenacious than just hit the eject button. We've got to resolve this. I've made a mistake. What do you do? Well, you can suck air in on the side to try to cool off the coal with with air, but that's probably not going to work if it's too hot a bite. So what can you do? You change the context a little bit. You expand the perspective, if you will. You throw some cold beverage on that hot thing, and it puts it out. And uh, that's what the Word of God will do, in a way. Have you ever had that experience? Remember being a little kid? You made that mistake, and you're like, cold water to solve it, and it it put it out? Maybe just me. Anyway, the Word of God will do that for us with the problem. And understand, it doesn't make the problem go away. It gives us perspective to be able to manage it. In verse 10, now it's for the people that won't be rejoicing in this coming beauty, this wonderful banquet. And they're embodied in the, the people of Moab, the arrogant, the haughty, the people just over the ridge from Judah. It will rest the hand of Yahweh on this mountain, and it will be trampled down, Moab, beneath him. 
like the trampling of a pile of straw and the water of a dung heap. Uh, perhaps the most interesting metaphor or simile in all of biblical literature, when he says like, that's a simile. 20 years ago, the kids said like a lot. Like, they're going to be like, uh, like track or trampled down like in a pile of like uh, straw in a pile of dung. That's what's coming for arrogance. It's not just, oh, God's just going to take it on the chin and say, oh, it's too bad they're arrogant. They're going into the manure pile for a swimming, uh, for a swimming session. He will spread out his hands in its midst like when a, when a swimmer spreads out to swim. He will bring low his arrogance along with the trickery of his hands. Who does this? The Lord does this. Your high-walled fortresses he'll throw down. He'll bring low. He'll hurl to the earth unto the dust. So what started, as I said last time, what started as this really high, glorious party in the first couple of verses ends with Moab spreading out its you know, breaststroke in the middle of a of slurry of, of manure and straw and water. Um, and that is not a recipe for, uh, for enjoyment when everybody's supposed to be feasting. How did Moab end up in this predicament? Well, they, were, they fell, in the, in the poem, they've fallen afoul of God's wrath. They've incurred God's wrath and he's torn them down. Instead of going out gladly to the mountain of God to praise him and worship him, they're portrayed as arrogant and being, being required, God needing to, to bring them down, which is always what he does when he encounters arrogance in the scriptures. It's a pretty common problem. And now I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about wisdom. I'm going to show you a few of our known hazards, and let's see if you can think about that. What, what's the hazard there? Everyone knows, right, that if this thing has been properly configured, that you don't want to touch the cheese. But it looks tasty, and it smells so nice. Remember Tom and Jerry? When Jerry would smell cheese, it would be like, it would be animated like that you could see the scent. It would be a lighter color in the room. And he'd, he'd smell it. It would carry him through the house over to where the refrigerator was open or something. So you know that that might be a desirable piece of cheese if you're into that. I know some of you are lactose intolerant. And, um, and I, I'm here for tolerance. But, but that, the point is that you don't want to touch that cheese because there's a consequence. And you know the consequence because you can see it. And little kids probably have to learn this if they've never seen a mousetrap or mousetrap. They have to learn it. But they probably don't have to learn it twice, right? Um, better to just tell them, right, don't touch that because, well, why not? Well, number one, you already know why not. Why not? Because I told you. But I'll help you understand reality. So why daddy knows not that you don't touch it is because it might break your finger because it's designed to break a, a mouse's neck. All right, so we're going to a place that is known to have poisonous vipers, rattlesnakes. We know not to pet the pretty snake. The reason you don't, that there's cause and effect. The cause of, of, of getting, uh, losing a hand or possibly your life from this thing biting you, the cause would be that you touch it. And the effect is that it will bite you. Matty Ross learned that the hard way in True Grit. A great book, and 
movie, both screenplays using exactly the script from the novel. Um, but that snake is going to bite you, and you know that the, it's easy to intuit cause and effect. Didn't God make pit vipers look like they're not good for you? When you look at that, I know there's a certain beauty to the symmetry of it, but there's also a certain kind of like, I'm not really. And I think it was Hondo where John Wayne explained the difference between uh, the friendly Indians and the, and, the, and the Comanches. I think it's who he was talking about, Hondo. And he said it's like rattlesnakes and, and, uh, and rat snakes. You could tell the difference just by looking. <laughs> uh, the, one, the hostile ones are dressed up for war and the other ones aren't. Anyway, you know it's, I mean, I've got kids that, you know, that we have generated ourselves who would love nothing more than to touch the pretty snake. There's coming a time in the kingdom when you can, but today isn't it. We're not in the kingdom, so Isaiah 2 and 4 and stuff isn't in effect. You can't just go play with the snakes. But if you encounter something in the wild that looks fungal, you might be able to survive on it. But it's kind of like there are two options. You can live on it or it can kill you. And I'm pretty sure this one will kill you because when I went searching for imagery, I said, give me a poisonous wild mushroom. And this is what the internet gave me. Now, those of you who know mushrooms probably can tell me something about that. Um, Here's what I know. It's not in the store. So it's probably going to kill me. That's how I think about mushrooms. One time, Chris and I had a, a wonderful weekend with a limousine driver from Russia who uh, told us all about his experiences. We were nannies. And he told us all his experiences in Russia, collecting mushrooms. You'll have to go digging for the mushrooms. Wonderful hearing about this. It sounded like such an interesting thing to be a mushroom hunter in Russia in the forest. Not the red forest in Ukraine, but the, you know, at, at um, Chernobyl. But, but anyway, I thought that would be an interesting and very dangerous hobby. And this is one of those things, I guess, that when you learn where the, the, the good ones are, that was expensive knowledge, which ones are edible and which ones aren't. And you really want grandma to pass that on um, before uh, it's too late. But I didn't grow up knowing about mushrooms, so we don't touch them. I like to talk about this a lot lately. What do I have there? That is obviously not a can of kerosene. It's not a can of diesel. What is that? That's a can of gasoline. And everybody here knows the gasoline is not flammable. That's the incorrect term. Gasoline is explosive. It's, ex- it's super flammable, and the vapors explode, and you can't get away from the vapor. That's the problem. So what are the hazards involved with utilizing this? Don't ever use it anywhere there's going to be any kind of open flame. But we put it in all our cars and all our motorcycles and all our things. Well, yeah, we use everything with what the rest of the world, or a lot of the world calls benzene, with this explosive product called gasoline. But you don't want to pour it on an open flame. And the reason is because it will burn your body to death. Okay? And, you do, and, and if you don't die, you will, you will want to. So don't do that. We know that there are cause and effect. So the cause would be, oh, look, an open flame. <laughs> I just saw my next picture. I'm sorry. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you know what the cause is, is that, that you poured gasoline on fire. The effect is that you die in a way that you aren't going to like. All right. That, to me, looks so funny. That's a horse. <laughs> right before you die, uh, that's the last thing you saw. <laughs> All right. 
Have you ever been around horses? Some of you are horse people, and you know what I'm going to say. You don't ever want a horse to feel uncomfortable with you behind it, right? And so the first thing you learn when you learn to deal with horses, the first thing I was ever taught was you pat the horse as you're working around. You can go behind him, but he's got to know you're there and be comfortable, and you pat him on his flank and say, I'm here, unless he's in a habit of looking for you know, six-foot-tall men to kick, and then you don't do this because someone tells you. But, um, but this will kill you. And you don't want to go behind a horse unless someone, unless you know what you're doing, because the horse is going to kick you and cause skull fracture. He's going to connect with your forehead. Your feet are going to leave the ground, and you're going to end up levitating for a half second and flying back to death. And that's what happens when this horse connects with both feet like this. And um, and the cause was that you stood behind that horse without proper precaution. And you knew it. You knew that mousetrap would snap and you still grab the cheese. You knew that the gasoline is going to explode because we told you, but you, well, I never, I thought I was fast enough. You're not fast enough. Don't ever do it. You thought that mushroom would, would be good to eat. I mean, it looks pretty and all. And that snake, he's, he's symmetrical. And that horse, he probably won't kick and then you're dead. These are known hazards. Known hazards. And we've all had a good chuckle about it that you know not to do these things because you know the cause and effect. Please don't anybody need to learn from these obvious examples that this is a cause that I never want to engage in because it's got an effect that I never want to encounter. I don't ever want to have any of these things happen to you or to me. Known hazards. One wisdom benefit of faith involves a known hazard that God constantly warns us about. And if we didn't get anything else out of Isaiah's little apocalypse, we should definitely hear this one. Biblical wisdom is not animated properly, but it's about to be. Some of you are fast readers and don't tell anybody what you just read because I want to animate through this. I'm going to take some time, not a whole lot of time. One button click can ruin your whole presentation. Biblical wisdom, chokhmah, is the skill of living your life before God in a way that pleases Him. And I think in Isaiah, we've heard a great skill, something to avoid, something we all need to avoid. And it's hard for us to avoid it at times we can't. It's gasoline that you don't want to pour on the fire. It's that mushroom that's probably going to kill you. It's standing behind that horse. I know it's not a big deal, clunk. All right? This is wisdom. The skill to live your life before God in a way that pleases Him. The wisdom that we're supposed to ask for and God doesn't uh, abrade us for asking. God has told us what pleases and what displeases Him. We know that there's a mousetrap and if you touch that trigger, it's going to snap on your finger. We know this. We don't need to try it out. But somehow we forget and we act like we don't know it. And that's what I mean by faith. God has promised certain consequences for certain choices and sin is always a choice, including mental attitude sins. Y'all stay with me because now we're getting to the punchline. One particularly difficult to, de- difficult to detect pattern of mental attitude sin is arrogance. It's hard to see but it too is a choice for which we're responsible. And this is the thing that you definitely don't want to be because there's a guaranteed mousetrap. We know that God has a big problem with arrogance because he always tells us so, including in this little apocalypse of Isaiah 24 through 26. 
And the question of our faith is, do we believe him? Do we believe that arrogance, I'm sorry? Do we believe him? I believe there is I before E except after C. Believe him is how you spell that. Thank you, Mike. Do we believe him (laughs) is the question. And this is the benefit of faith that God said, that's got a mousetrap behind it. There is a poison snake in arrogance. I once knew of a man, a school teacher at school I grew up in, who asleep in his home, a brown recluse spider landed on his face and bit him. He probably scratched. But that happens when you're asleep and a brown recluse lands on your face. Some of you are going to struggle with this image tonight as you go to bed. We'll be praying for you about the spiders. You know what happened. It was early in the night when the spider bit him, so the poison had a long time to work through his cheek tissue. By the time he woke up in the morning, a lot of damage, a lot of infection had already set in. There was a lot of necrotic dead tissue in his cheek. He had to go to the hospital, and they had to do surgery that day, the day as I recall, that he had this, this thing bite him, and they removed a lot more tissue than you would, you would imagine to save what was left of that portion of his face. He recovered. It was a bad scar, you know, for a while. Probably filled in okay. But, um, but you know, you hear about this as a really bad thing to happen, and it does. It's really uh, dangerous, and I think that's how sin works. By the way, when the, when the bad spiders bite you, they, they also put a local anesthetic, and you can't feel the real poison. You feel a little like a mosquito bite, maybe a little bit of a, of, a, of a numbness, maybe a little bit of an itch. You don't realize that you're in a lot of trouble. And that's how sin works. What if we hear God's word on the inevitable consequences of arrogance and fail to believe that revelation? I hear that that's a poisonous snake and it'll bite me. I hear that that's a gasoline can and you're about to pour this on the fire and, and blow yourself up. I hear it. I believe it, but I don't continue to believe it. I put that thought aside. I let myself forget it in the moment in my consciousness. And I stop thinking what God said about it. Well, I've run a great risk. There I am. This is not safe for work. That is what happens <laughs> when you are a mouse and you go after the cheese. You're going you're gonna to get snapped. For those of you that this is too gruesome an image, I apologize. For those of you rejoicing that one more mouse is not destroying your shoes or whatever, I am sympathetic. Paul says in Acts chapter 20, he was talking to the Ephesian elders, that he's innocent of the blood of all men. He's innocent of the blood of all men. Sit down, please. Why is he innocent of the blood of all men? Because he preached the whole counsel of God's word, and they're not able to say, well, I didn't know there was a mousetrap. I didn't know there was a bear trap. I didn't know there was a deadfall. Paul told them. He gave them the map. He gave them a flashlight. And he said, we walked with them down the path quite a ways and said, now don't ever step off over there because you're going to fall into the pit. That's the nature of revelation. And this is how God thinks about arrogance. So let me play a game with you as we close. What is it? It is easily spotted in others, but easily overlooked in ourselves. It is easily projected onto others from ourselves where we're actually the guilty party, but we see it in others who may or may not be guilty. 
It universally leaves the recipient with a bad impression. If I'm being this way and you, get, you, you encounter me, you don't like it. Bad taste in your mouth. If it's a bad first impression, it can be almost impossible to overcome that initial impression from this. It makes heroes into villains. That should have been a successful woman. That should have been a Gibor Hayil. That should have been a man, a mighty man of valor. Should have been a Boaz, but it, it turns out the guy's a Haman. Oops, I missed one. It makes villains think they're heroes. You know, no bad guy in any story, real or imagined, ever thinks he's the bad guy. Unchecked, it is unimaginable soul-rotting power. If you just let it run, unchecked. My prayer for all of you that it isn't unchecked. It corrupts our thinking about everything and about everyone. This corruption makes a cognitive fracture between our inner thought life and reality. We think different from how things actually are. Do you know what we're talking about? That fracture, if it's not resolved, can become a chasm and spiral us into dissociative tendencies in which we become less and less capable of perceiving reality itself. What does this to, what is this? Recovery from it can be among life's most delightful experiences, but when we need to go through that recovery, it seems like torture and it's the last thing we want. It's that glass of cold water or room temperature water that that person dying of thirst needs but doesn't feel like anymore. It's that nauseating feeling somebody has who needs desperately to eat but is beyond the point of real appetite. They need food. They need nourishment. They're about to die. They don't feel like it. What is this? What am I describing? It's arrogance. It's pride. It's that sense of self that takes us out of reality and puts us into this frame of insanity which our sin nature desperately crave that we would live in. <clears throat> in Psalm 18, 26 and 27, with the pure you show yourself pure, with the crooked you show yourself astute, for you save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes you abase. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says, there are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Proverbs 21, 3-4 says, To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. Haughty eyes, that's arrogance, and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked is sin. That's an interesting little proverb there. The lamp of the wicked that leads him onward is his own arrogance and, and, and insane, unrealistic sense of self. Proverbs 30, 11 through 14, just bear with me. There is a kind of man who curses his father and does not bless his mother. There's a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. There's a kind Oh, how lofty are his eyes, and his eyelids are raised in arrogance. There's a kind of man whose teeth are like swords, his jaw teeth like knives, to devour the afflicted of the earth and the needy from among men. What makes that last verse really punch? The villain that actually goes after people with his sword mouth 
is the inner attitude, that arrogance, that haughtiness of spirit that drives who he is. I told you it makes heroes into villains. In Psalm 10, verses 1 through 4, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. See, I think this, this is not just describing villains, it's describing people. That we slip into this thought of ourselves that's out, it's not realistic. We're not the determinant of what is right or wrong or what should be or shouldn't be. We're God's kids. We're just little babies in His hand. But what we're saying when we self-assert, as Psalm 10, I think, is saying, we're saying that there's no God because I will have my own self-assertion. In Proverbs 16, 1-5, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. The reason I showed you the picture of the mouse that got caught in the trap is because these things are known. You know there's a mouse trap. Don't get a broken neck. Proverbs 8, Lady Wisdom says in verses 12 and 13, I wisdom dwell with prudence and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Lady Wisdom says she hates them. In Isaiah 13, 11, we recently read, Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. God's making war on arrogance. Isaiah 6, 16, 6, and again recently, we've heard that the pride of Moab and excessive pride, even of his arrogance, pride and fury, his idle boasts of, are, are false. Isaiah 25, 11, we just heard, he will spread out his hands in the middle of it as a swimmer spreads his hands to swim but the Lord will lay low his pride together from the trickery of his hands. With the trickery of his hands. Jeremiah 48, 29. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He's very proud of his haughtiness, his pride, his arrogance, and his self-exaltation. This is why God's going after Moab as a pattern for all the nations. Psalm 31, 19. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you've wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. You hear the difference, the alternative? In Psalm 30, 73, verse 6, Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Proverbs 29, uh, 23, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. We know this. We know the cause and effect of the Creator, but the question of the wisdom to live this skill, to know it and live it, is will you believe it 
as you leave? Will you believe it tomorrow and the next day? Will you believe that I'm walking behind a horse asking to be kicked in the face by engaging in arrogance, by allowing your heart to be lifted up in pride against God? These are known hazards. And there's no reason, there's no reason to to find yourself on the wrong side of the joy of Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah 25, the, the joy is not for Moab, it's for those who humble themselves before God. And my appeal to you who don't know Christ as Savior is you're one or the other. You're either rejoicing with God or you're Moab or receiving God's wrath. Those of you who know Christ, you have a father. You have a heavenly father who in Hebrews chapter 12 has a plan for you and it doesn't include the self-destructive poison of arrogance. Our Father, we thank you for your plan for us, your provision, your grace, the arrangement of our lives, and the provision you've given us tonight of wisdom. Father, don't let us waste our lives in self-assertion and arrogance. Let us humble ourselves before you so that you don't have to subordinate us the hard way. But Father, if it requires the hard way, we're ready for it. We want it because we want to be what you want us to be, and nothing less, for there can be nothing more. We ask in Jesus' name. We all said... Amen. Mm-hmm.